The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right. Well, I'd like to begin the evening with just a little bow to you all, a bow of appreciation that you're here um, for your efforts to be here tonight and Appreciation for your determination to be more awake, more awake in life. So, yeah, for the past year, I've been working um, as a full-time chaplain at uh, Sequoia Hospital, and sometimes people ask me, you know, why would you want to, you know, why would you want to go to the hospital and be with sick people all day? Why would you want to do that? You know? And um, so I tell them, well, you know, when people are experiencing, you know, serious illness or death or dying or devastating changes to their lives, um, kind of all the trivial stuff falls away. You know, and I like being in that space with people. And as a Buddhist, I practice being comfortable in that space. You know, the the space where it's very clear that we're all aging and that we all get sick and that we all die. So I like being in that space. And then, you know, sometimes people say, well, how can you, you know, how can you just go you know, from room to room, all this pain and suffering. And and um, so I tell them, well, you know, it's really my practice. My practice is what um, keeps me grounded. It's what sustains me, keeps me steady, so that I can be with people um, in extreme pain and suffering. And so what what is that practice? Well, that practice is... Um, the four foundations of mindfulness. So um, that's what I want to talk about tonight. So these um, four foundations are really just that. They form the bedrock of Vipassana practice, which is the practice we do here. And the four foundations of mindfulness don't so much um, describe mindfulness um, as they do describe how to develop it, how, um, how do we do this practice. And you find this um, how-to description in one of the very earliest texts that we have of the Buddhist teachings called the Satipatthana Sutta. And many Buddhists consider this to be the most important of um, all the Buddha's discourses. And there are um, obviously... There are many, many teachings recorded over the centuries, and um, this is uh, one collection. There are more. So, um, but of all the um, Buddha's teachings, this one is considered to be the most important. And because in this um, sutta, the Buddha um, lays out really the way that we practice, the way that we can. Um, really apply non-reactive awareness to our experience. This is kind of really the heart of it. And so this sutta 
contains the Buddha's core instructions for our practice. It's kind of how to vipassana. Um, so sati, satipatthana, sati is the Pali word for mindfulness, and patana means um, foundation. So satipatthana. So the Buddha's uh, intention behind um, teaching this practice, he really wanted to share what he had developed, um, that um, this practice um, that allowed him to experience a very deep sense of contentment and peace. And in this Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha describes... Um, this practice that he developed as the direct path to the end of suffering. The direct path to the end of suffering. So, pretty big. Pretty big. And the Buddha offered this practice and all these instructions so that, you know, each one of us here tonight can, um, can liberate ourselves through this practice. We can become free from suffering in this life. So, I thought I would read just from the first section of the sutta. The Buddha says, bhikkhus, or monks, or nuns, or practitioners, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So the first, mindfulness of the body. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings. The second foundation of mindfulness. He abides contemplating mind as mind. And he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. So in all the various ways that the Buddha describes this practice, the common element in um, all these descriptions is this non-reactive awareness that we bring to experience, this kind of acceptance of um, how things are. It has to do with a kind of a letting go, letting things be. So the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body and breath. And this is what embodies this practice that we do. It grounds us here and now. This is what carries me through my day to a large extent. Um, Mindfulness of body and breath. And this first foundation is very helpful in terms of letting us go, letting, helping us let go of our preoccupations with there and then so that we can be here and now. It helps us let go of our interpretations and our commentaries about experience so that we can 
be present for it so that we can see clearly what's happening rather than getting caught in our concepts and ideas about what's happening. So mindfulness of the body, grounding us right here, right now. And in fact, one of the characteristics of sati or mindfulness is described as not floating away. So the Buddha said that this, actually this practice alone, this first foundation of mindfulness, um, that this is really the only practice that you need um, to, um, to be enlightened, to free yourself from suffering. So I thought I would read again from the section Mindfulness of Breathing. And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? Here a bhikkhu gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. I breathe out sh- I breathe out long he understands I breathe out long and so on he he trains thus I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body he trains thus I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body he trains thus I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation so this is what we teach here, this is what um, perhaps what you were doing during the first um, half hour or so, just following the breath, following the sensations of the body. And so then following this section on breathing, the Buddha um, includes a teaching on the four postures of meditation. There are four postures, sitting, lying, walking, and standing. And after that, after he lists these four, he, um, he says, a bhikkhu understands accordingly however his body is disposed. So this understanding accordingly however your body is disposed, this has really been a powerful tool for me in terms of strengthening my mindfulness after I leave here and as I'm going about my day. So I'm constantly kind of checking in with my body. I notice my posture. I notice the movement of my body, the steps as I go down the stairs at the hospital or walk through the grocery store. And so this really helps me to stay awake, to be present, to not get lost in um, all those preoccupations that come into the mind. Again, bhikkhus, when walking, a bhikkhu understands I am walking. When standing, he understands I am standing. When sitting, I am sitting. When lying down, I am lying down. Or he understands accordingly, however, his body is disposed. So actually, this is probably a good time for just just to take a few minutes of mindfulness of the body and just um, 
stand up and stretch and really do it mindfully, each movement of standing up. Stands accordingly, however, his body is disposed. A technique for staying mindful. And so there are many ways to, um, to use this practice, especially mindfulness of the body. Um, and breathing, not just on the cushion, but in our, in our daily life. And the Buddha really emphasizes this way of practicing, just not only when we're on the cushion, but when we're moment by moment in, our, um, in the experience of our life. So after the Buddha described the four postures, he talks about full awareness, Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So, many opportunities for practice. So, our practice is all about experiencing the body in and of itself independent of our interpretations. So just as we practice with the breath in this way when we're sitting, um, we let go of our thinking about the breath, right? And, um, you know, kind of if those thoughts come in, oh, my breathing is too sharp, it's not relaxed, or it's too shallow, or I know, sh- I know I should be breathing more deeply, I'm just a bad meditator. So we know we just let go of all those types. of Those are our interpretations, right? Our, our mind thinking about the experience, and we're just present for the breath, for the sensations of the breath, moving in the body, not judging and not wanting something different. So mindfulness of the body and the breath, powerful practice. And I love the way the Buddha talks about the breath 
in this Satipatthana Sutta, he talks about it, um, using it in meditation as a way of tranquilizing the body, as as just a very deep kind of relaxation, of pleasure, really. And the beauty of this pleasure is that, um, you know, it doesn't require us to get something from out there, to spend money, to take something from someone else, to achieve something. It's just all right here, right here. We all have it. It doesn't cost anything. Um, So when the Buddha um, refers in the sutta, uh, when he says that we practice the four foundations of mindfulness, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, he's really talking about we do this practice when we realize that um, the source of true contentment and peace and happiness is not out there. It's not something that we need to have or that we have some experience or some things or some people, some relationship. It's really, um, you know, it's really right here. So having put away covetousness, just that wanting, wanting from something out there and grief, you know, that resistance to what's out there when it's not what, when it's not to our liking. So the covetousness, the grasping, the grief, the resisting, we're putting that aside. We're just practicing with what we have in here, our own inner resources. The four foundations of mindfulness. So, second foundation of mindfulness. Um, foundation... Uh, Mindfulness of feelings. And so when people, often when people hear that, um, they think it's about, you know, the emotions, our feelings. And, and it's often taught this way in the West. Um, but in the Buddha's time, when the Buddha um, taught the second foundation of mindfulness, feelings, he's, he taught it as the feeling tone, the feeling tone of our experience. And he... Um, he taught that the feeling tone of our um, of all of our experience in life can really be classified as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And understanding this feeling tone and how it affects the mind is really crucial to um, to this process of of liberation, of freeing the heart and mind from suffering. But there's a reason why the foundations are in the order that they're in. Because first, before we come to our experience, we want to make sure we're embodied, that we're in our bodies, so that when we come to the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we're not getting caught in this kind of um, world of concepts and interpretations. And I think particularly when we experience um, unpleasant or painful feeling or experiences, um, then I think we're particularly vulnerable to overlaying our interpretations onto that experience. We're, we're particularly vulnerable to taking it so personally and to viewing it as, you know, it's all, this is all about me and my pain, you know, uh, 
what did I do to deserve this? Or how dare you do that to me? Or this really common one, this is all my fault, I'm such a screw-up. Or it's all your fault, you know? (laughs) Why are you doing this to me? Or it's not fair, this just shouldn't be. So I'm sure that some of these sound familiar, right? So when painful things happen, this is the kind of the reactivity that happens around them or can happen around them. The anger and the resentment, the bitterness and the disgust and the resistance or the the holding, the clinging. Um, So if we see this kind of reactivity, clinging to what we like and a resisting or avoiding what we don't, we see this as the root cause of our suffering, as the Buddha taught in the, in the Four Noble Truths, then this constant movement in the mind towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, this, this really creates kind of um, agitation, kind of keeps us from feeling at ease in life. And you can watch this in your meditation. Um, I'm sure you've noticed um, sometimes when you're sitting, things get, there's a pain or something's uncomfortable. Start that kind of subtle squirming, you know, well, maybe if I lean a little more forward, the pain will go away. Or maybe if I shift my weight over here or over there, or maybe I can, you know, maybe I can find some place to be comfortable. Right? So the squirming that we do sometimes in our sitting. Um, And so I would urge you to actually to pay attention to this and to be present um, for your discomfort without the squirming. Kind of see what happens. Just sit very still and investigate the feeling of discomfort, pain. And it makes for a very interesting experience. And on that, on this very small level, we're, we're practicing, um, actually the whole key to, um, to true happiness and contentment in this life, which is getting comfortable with discomfort. Getting comfortable with discomfort. So that's a way that you can actually do it, practice it on a small scale in your sitting. And you can also, when you're, um, during your day, it's also good to notice when you, um, when you're experiencing something as pleasant and when you're experiencing it as unpleasant. And it became for me a real revelation to, um, observe during my day this movement of my mind, always towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, constant kind of moving back and forth. A preoccupation. And it's, um, unless you're really paying attention, it's so subtle that you can really not even be aware of it. And what I discovered through observing this movement in my mind is that it takes energy. Actually, it takes a lot of energy. And it's really very self involved. You know, it's really, I realized how much of my time was um, spent pursuing the little things that were all about me and my preferences, trying to make adjustments according to what I like, what I don't like. like. And Tanjaf, this wonderful teacher who comes here once a year, 
Kanjav calls it the unnecessary turmoil in the mind. And all this, what I found was that all this self-involvement, involvement with my likes and dislikes, and it was ultimately not very satisfying. And it took a lot of energy. So, the Buddha also talks about, so pleasant, unpleasant, pleasurable, unpleasurable. The Buddha also talks about another kind of a a pleasure. He talks about, um, in this um, uh, sutta, he talks about an, an unworldly kind of pleasure. And this unworldly kind of pleasure comes through um, cultivating these, establishing these four foundations of mindfulness. And so when you hear Buddhists talk about um, joy, tranquility, bliss, peace, contentment, ease, it's this kind of unworldly pleasure that we can sometimes experience through our practice. So these are, these are the qualities, joy, tranquility, bliss, peace, contentment, that are available to our minds when we allow them to rest, when we can calm that constant swinging towards pleasant, away from unpleasant, when we stop trying to continually manipulate our experience to fix things so that they're just to our specifications of what we like. You know, when we can, we, when we can just let things be. So the feeling tone, second foundation of mindfulness. Third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of, of mind, sometimes called chitta or consciousness. So when we look at our consciousness, our mental awareness of an object, we can sometimes see how it's colored by certain mental factors, mental states. And those factors um, in this third foundation of mindfulness are the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, desire, uh, ill will, confusion, whatever words you want to call them. These, um, These mental factors... Um, are kind of in, they're they're arising and falling away all the time, and when we can be mindful of them, we then we get a little distance from them, and we're not quite so caught, and we can have a little relief from um, even when the coloring of the experience is very strong. And I'll give you an example. When I was on retreat years ago in um, Joshua Tree. Um, I'd never been to Joshua Tree before, and um, several times a day I took um, a little dirt road that went from the dormitories to the meditation hall. And I was really enjoying the scenery in the desert and these Joshua trees. I'd never seen them before. They were just so unusual and intriguing and charming, and they took all these weird shapes, and I just was really um, enjoying them. I was really... Just, I love taking that walk. 
Well, about halfway through the retreat, I developed this um, excruciating headache. And, and so I found myself, because of this pain, I found myself in this very strong, aversive state. And so as I took that same walk, I had a very different experience because of this um, aversion, this coloring my experience. And it was like, I was looking at the Joshua trees and I was thinking, how could I ever have thought these were cute or charming? They are the most misshapen, ugly. I just can't stand looking at them. <laughs> that, and the, you know, my whole experience was changed through the coloring of my aversion that came out of this pain. And it was really quite striking to me. So this is, these are very powerful forces in the mind. Our, our greed and our, our hatred or aversion. And um, so, and I'm sure you can probably um, recall some experiences in your own life when this has happened. So, in this section of the Sutta on mind, the Buddha talks about these forces greed, hatred, and delusion, and he also talks about the opposing group of mind states that are possible once these forces um, or taints, sometimes they're called, or poisons, once they have been um, uprooted. So on... And how bhikkhus, this is contemplation of mind... And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. So this is really an important part of of our practice, to notice both when um, ill will or aversion is present in the mind and when it's not present. Because when we notice that it's present, we probably are going to notice that we're suffering. I certainly noticed how much I was suffering in my aversive state um, in Joshua Tree. And then when we can notice when it's not present, we also notice how that feels. That feels good. That feels really good because there's no suffering present. No wanting, no grasping, no hardening, no resisting, no uncertainty or cloudiness. So the Buddha is really giving us a way to, um, to train ourselves because we know we want to be free from suffering. We know we want true happiness. That's why we're all here tonight, right? We know we want to be at ease in life. So if we're mindful, we're going to naturally gravitate towards what makes us happy, and we will begin to naturally notice and drop the grasping, the aversion, because we know we suffer when those forces um, of the mind are present. 
And remember the phrase the Buddha repeats over and over in his teachings, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Having put away the covetousness, the wanting, the greed. The grief is the resistance, the aversion. And so when we give up our expectations that we're going to find true happiness somewhere out there, And many people who have not reflected on the true nature of happiness really do believe that happiness is about pleasure, sensual pleasure. So then what are we left with? We're left with working with our relationship to what's out there. Not what we're experiencing, but how. How we're experiencing it. How we're experiencing it through this framework that the Buddha gave us these four foundations of mindfulness. And the beauty of, the, of our practice with these foundations is that suddenly we have some control. I mean, I'm sure you've noticed um, how little control we have um, over what's happening out there in the world, what's happening in our bodies. Um, we have really almost no control. But what we can control is our relationship to our experience in life. We each, we each one of us has those resources to, um, to free ourselves from suffering through mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feeling tone, mindfulness of the thoughts and patterns in our thinking, mindfulness of the forces within the mind associated with those patterns. So, this control that we develop over our relationship to the world, this is what really steadies us. This is what steadies me as I go through my day in the hospital. This is the ballast that keeps us steady and keeps us from getting swept away by the pain and um, the pain in the world, the pain of, of, of human existence. So, mindfulness of mind greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's interesting that nowhere in the Buddhist teachings does he describe his awakening in terms of what it was like, what it, what it was, what it was. But he really only describes it in terms of what his awakening freed him from. Um, only in terms of the qualities of mind that were no longer present in him, namely craving, um, greed, ill will, aversion, confusion. Um, through this practice, he, um, he had cleansed himself of all those forces. So the, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dharmas, and dharmas has several different meanings in Buddhism depending on the context. Sometimes it can mean the truth or, or refer to the teachings, but in the case of this uh, Satipatthana Sutta, it means mental objects or um, things the mind can know, and it has to do with certain, again, mental states. And in this sutta, these mental states are 
described as um, either those mental states that bind us, enslave us, that stand in the way of being free, and those that move us towards being free, towards liberating the mind from suffering. So what are the states then that cloud the mind, that enslave the mind, that keep it from being free and light? Well, these are the five hindrances. The five hindrances. Um, Sensual desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. So working with these states, and we all have experienced them, I'm quite sure all of us, we've been meditating even for a short time. Um, And the reason we want to really learn to work with these hindrances with our best mindfulness is because they hinder our ability to train the mind. They stand in the way of our inclining our mind towards freedom. And they cause the mind, sometimes it's described, to, to, to take on kind of a brittle, brittle quality. And when you try to, what happens when you try to work with um, um, some brittle material? You know, it, it, it shatters, it breaks, it's not malleable. So when we work with these states, it's important to bring our bare attention to them so that we don't get too caught up in our dismay over their arising, right? I mean, oh no, not that restlessness again. I really need to sit this time. I can't, I don't want to get up. I don't want to get up, but here's this restless energy again. Or, oh, I don't, there's that boring feeling again. I don't want to sit with that boring feeling. But these are the things that naturally arise when we, when we uh, meditate. And so our job is really to, um, to not react against them, not get too caught up in judging and critiquing them, but to, um, to really investigate them and let go of the reactivity against them. Because when we get lost in our reaction to one of these hindrances, then that really makes the mind even more clouded, even more brittle, even harder to work with. So when I work with these states, I um, often use the RAIN acronym. How many people are familiar with the RAIN acronym, acronym, R-A-I-N? Just one person. Well, the RAIN acronym is a very powerful tool for for working with... um, um, the hindrances with and with the um, the taints. So rain, the R is for s- simply recognizing. Oh, aversion has arisen. Here's aversion. The A is for accepting it, not resisting it, not reacting. Oh, here it is, aversion. Just part of being human. A R A I. I is for investigating. We use our mindfulness to investigate this um, this aversion or this lust or whatever it is. Um, how does it feel in the body? What are all what are the thought patterns associated with it? What kind of emotions are are arising? 
This is the process of investigation. And then the N is for um, non-clinging, just letting them go. And when we investigate these hindrances, these um, states, mental states, they really do begin to dissipate, kind of like a fog, kind of lifts. So the RAIN acronym. Try to remember that one the next time that you notice that something's going on. Something's going on. What is it? R-A-I-N. So um, when we recognize, when we bring our attention to something, that that attention has has a power. Um, so if we give our if we give over our attention to anger, resentment, envy, bitterness, just lose ourselves in in these um, particular kinds of qualities, then with our attention we're nurturing them, and then they tend to get stronger. So we don't we don't ignore them or we don't deny that they exist. But once we recognize them and investigate them with our, with our mindfulness, then we can direct our awareness elsewhere. We can direct our awareness elsewhere. We can sometimes choose to direct our awareness to the kindness in our hearts, to the forgiveness in our hearts, to the compassion that we feel And so by directing our attention there whenever possible, um, these qualities can take root and really grow. And so this is what my work in the hospital is really all about. It's, it's, um, my work is my practice. My, my work is bringing a kind, compassionate, generous presence to people who are suffering. And so it really is Um, My work is my practice. So these five hindrances in this last uh, uh, foundation of mindfulness are, they actually are manifestations that come out of the, the three poisons or taints, the third foundation of mindfulness, greed, hatred, and delusion. So, for example, the sensual desire, that's clearly um, rooted in greed. Um, the hindrance of aversion, clearly rooted in hatred or ill will. And the other three, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt, those three have their roots in delusion. So it's really important for us to investigate, to get to know intimately both the the three taints or defilements in the mind, as well as these hindrances that grow out of them and that cloud our minds and that, that make it brittle. Because if we want to have a healthy mind, if we want to have true peace, um, if we want our actions in life to be firmly rooted in the beneficial states of mind, then we really have to... Um, we really have to understand these poisons, these in, these hindrances, that these are what cause the mind to be unhealthy. 
So that's why we really pay attention to them, really bring our mindfulness to them and investigate them. And if we look in the world around us, um, it's pretty clear. Um, uh, The results of minds that have been allowed to be uh, overwhelmed by greed, hatred, and delusion. I mean, minds driven by greed, by wanting, have kind of created and um, further this consumer society that we live in, right? And when you look at the wars and the violence and um, and just the horrible acts that are committed in the world, these are uh, minds that have been committed by minds that are um, driven by hatred. So, last, there is the abandoning of mental states, these mental states, which we um, see through our lens of mindfulness are not beneficial. If our intention is to cultivate a mind that is light, malleable, trainable, not brittle. So, and this is all very practical, isn't it? Um, And this is kind of a hallmark of the Buddha and 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 his teachings, that they're very practical, very logical. They're not moralistic but they make a lot of sense. So now in this um, fourth foundation of mindfulness section, the Buddha includes um, a description of the five aggregates. Aggregate, an aggregate being a heap or a, a mass made up of a collection of particles. And the Buddha offered this teaching as a way of illustrating a key source of suffering. Uh, namely, when we relate to these suffering, when we relate to these aggregates by clinging to them, then we suffer. So the five aggregates, what are the five aggregates? Um, material form or body, feeling tone, uh, perception, formations, and consciousness. So we talked about uh, material form, body, We talked about feeling tone. Perception is really how we create our our certain, our our mental concepts of the world that allowed us to negotiate the world. You know, this is a floor, this is a ceiling, this is paper. Um, These are the perceptions. Formations are, um, formations include in our intentions, our thoughts, um, our uh, stories about experience, our emotions. And the, and the fifth aggregate, consciousness, is kind of the space within all of these aggregates arise. And the Buddha taught that when we identify with any one of these aggregates, and um, we all know people who uh, identify very strongly with their thoughts. They think they are, they think they are their thoughts. Or people who identify very strongly with their views and opinions. Well, I'm a Democrat. Well, I'm a Republican. I'm an independent. You know, so there's this identification um, that the Buddha points out is the the, um, the cause of suffering. And he also was very clear uh, um, about teaching that, you know, we have no control 
over any of these aggregates, no control whatsoever. And so that therein lies the suffering when we try to hold on to them, identify with them, because they're always changing. They are impermanent, as is everything in this life. And so then his teaching turns to, well, how can we use these aggregates, these components that, you know, kind of make up um, a, a self, if you want to call it that, um, how can we use them um, in a skillful way? And so how can we use our bodies, our strengths, our volitions, our intention, our choices in life? How can we put all of these to use to move us towards freedom, towards happiness? And at this point, the focus of the Sutta changes. And up to this point, um, the Buddha was emphasizing just this bare attention, bringing bare attention, non-reactive awareness to our experience. And at this point, the emphasis changes to really coming to um, practicing with understanding the mental processes or the psychological processes that are going on in the mind. And most, most specifically to understand the processes that cause suffering and those that free the mind. So we've talked a lot about the forces in the mind that cause suffering. So now at the very, towards the very end of this Satipatthana Sutta, we come to the section on the seven factors of awakening. Sometimes called the sap of Buddhism, uh, because these um, these factors are present in in all the various branches and traditions of the tree of Buddhism. And so, again, we're awakening to these processes, processes in the mind, to this flux of arising and falling away, and being attuned to the, um, this insight um, into life that everything's always changing. And tuning in to those processes that lead to this sense of well-being and ease in life and those that don't that lead to unhealthy states of mind. So through this practice, we are cultivating, developing ourselves through our efforts, through our determination, through our investigations. And if anyone ever tells you that this is a passive practice, it most certainly is not. We are taking an active role in understanding those causes and conditions that lead to to certain mind states. And we're taking an active role in cultivating the skillful ones and dropping the unskillful ones. So the seven factors of awakening. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, there being the mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, 
mindfulness being the first of the seven factors, a bhikkhu understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me, or there being no mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, he understands there is no mindfulness of enlightenment factor in me. And he also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor, and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. So there's all this um, watching, paying attention, investigating around these seven enlightenment factors. When are they present? What brings them about? How can we how can we develop them? So the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And what we find as our practice deepens um, is that these factors kind of automatically start to grow, get stronger. And as the Buddha points out, it's really important to recognize when these qualities, these very positive qualities of the mind and heart are present so that we can fuel them with our intention, nurture them with our intention, with our attention, attention. Um, because when, when we develop them, one kind of leading into another and nurturing them, this is when our minds truly start to, to be at rest. This is when, um, this is when we are, and when we can have a mind that is not so agitated, that is more at rest, then we're setting the conditions for deep insights to arise. And when the mind is at rest, not agitated, we can look very deeply into it. We can look very deeply into our experience. It's like the waves on a lake um, have quieted down and the lake is finally completely calm and still like glass. And then we can look way down into the depths. We can look right through to the bottom. So, the four foundations of mindfulness. This is how we can come to this place of total freedom, of when we can really look into our experience very deeply. So I thank you for um, letting me share this, um, my thoughts and ideas around, well, really, it's the Buddha's, the Buddha's thoughts and ideas around these four foundations, because they are so, um, so key to me in my day, and I hope they will be in yours too. So good luck with your practice. You're welcome.